Thank you, Seth. What a great reminder. As we're told in the Word of God that uh, it takes time and quietness to wait upon the Lord and to get to know the Lord. And we need to still our hearts in crazy days to make sure that we see that he's the all-powerful one that we're resting upon. Heavenly Father, as we open our eyes, as we look into your word, we pray that you will open our eyes. Open the eyes of faith that we might behold wondrous things from your mighty law and hearts transformed. Still our souls this morning, quiet us with your love. Give to us, Lord, the realization that in this moment of time, you long to draw us close to yourself and to make known your mercy and grace. May our hearts be receptive. In Jesus' name, amen. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith. Wow, that is a shot across the bow. That is a warning that is as clear as can be. The word eager here is an interesting word. Literally, it means to stretch out, out to, to grab something in desperation or great passion. A passionate longing for money can cause people to wander. When I think of that word wander, I think of someone who is going about aimlessly. They go from place to place without a definite purpose. It, it implies that the individual has some indifference to a fixed course and maybe doesn't know the outcome of their wandering. The word to stray is a synonym, and often it suggests an unintentional drift away, some, away from something vital and essential, like God and faith in him and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Some people, not everyone, but a lot, Longing passionately for the things of this world, like money. Once in the faith, have now wandered from it. It was the Apostle Paul who wrote these words in 1 Timothy chapter 6. It's a letter to his son in the faith, Timothy, who was pastoring in the great metropolis of Ephesus. So the Apostle Paul is writing to one who is pastoring in a cosmopolitan place where there are many temptations and in a very wealthy and rich city. If you were to go to Ephesus and walk through the city in the mid-first century, as Paul did, you would be impressed with its beauty. The place indeed had splendid mountains and monuments. And because it was near the Caister River, the landscape was green, not like the desert. Now we're talking about 
the western part of Turkey, where Ephesus is. If you came in from the east side, you would follow, as it says, it shows you on the slide, this walkway, uh, which you can walk through the ruins today. By the way, the ruins in Ephesus are some of the greatest biblical sites, archaeological sites from Bible times that you can find anywhere in the world. And take a real good look at this picture as you're walking from east into the heart of the city of Ephesus. And then notice this picture, which is an artist's rendition of what it must have looked like. And I'm always surprised by the color. When you look at ruins, they're all the same. I was convinced that uh, everything before 1950 was black and white. There was no color in the world because I wasn't born then and everything I saw was a picture of black and white and then when they invented color pictures and uh, I realized that color's always been in the world and they love the colors in Ephesus. You'd be impressed by its beauty. You'd also be impressed by its size. It was the second largest city in um, the near or in the Middle East, the Near East. Here's a picture of the famous theater. Uh, the Bible tells us in Acts 19, that there was a riot in this very theater. This is the size of a football stadium that could probably seat about 50,000 people. And so it was a large place. It was part of the Roman Empire, had been for two centuries. It was the capital of the province of Asia. And it also had a library. Now, this library might have been developed a little more toward the end of the first century, but here's a picture of the Library of Celsus where great books were brought in from all over the world. One of the greatest libraries, again, second to Alexandria in Egypt. And here's another picture of the face of that library that has been reconstructed from the ruins to give you some sense of its height. But you'd also be very impressed that this city was extremely religious. There was the cult worship for the emperor, that Rome encouraged that wherever they had a colony. But Ephesus boasted of the famed Temple of Diana. And here's an artist's conception again of this temple. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It had something like 150 columns in it. I don't remember all the dimensions, but it was indeed immense. And so much that happened in the city was connected with the occult of this worship of the emperor and of other things. It's interesting, when we read Paul's visit to Ephesus in Acts 19, there was a revival and many believed, and they came and they brought their books from magic, sorcery, the occult, and they burned them publicly because of their faith in Christ. This would have happened right on these city streets or maybe in the theater. And they said that it was worth a thousand, 150,000 pieces of silver, which one person has estimated to be like a, no, it's 50,000 pieces of silver, which is estimated to be almost 150 years of a normal person's wage. The point is, there was a lot of money invested in the occult. <laughs> but when they came to Christ, they willingly gave it up. Idols be gone, and burn them they did. And I'm sure the library of Celsus was sad to see all of those books burned up. But this place was impressive because of its wealth. 
And that's what concerned the Apostle Paul because the people who came to Christ, many of them gave up their idol books, but some of them did not give up their idol wealth. It's important when we come to Christ to give him our all. As Dawn mentioned in marriage today, what a wonderful faith story. When she committed herself to Milo, it was all. We're all in. During the time of Constantine, when Christianity was forced upon many of the people, it became fashionable to be a Christian, and so many people became Christians and were even baptized as Christians, but when they were baptized in the water, they held out their right hand and never let their right hand get wet as a clear indication to everyone that I'm giving myself to Christ, but he doesn't have it all. I think Paul was afraid that that's what a lot of Christians were doing. Their God was still their money. So if you have your Bibles open to 1 Timothy chapter 6, we're going to see that Paul really addresses two groups of people. And here's the first group, those who want to be rich. That's the phrase that comes out of verse 9, chapter 6. Those who want to be rich fall into temptation in a trap. I want to, I'm not going to read the verse 2 through verse 5, but Paul says these are important things to teach. You need to urge people about these, insist upon them. Verse 3, this is the sound instruction of the Lord Jesus Christ that leads to godliness. But there are some conceited and arrogant people who reject this teaching, and they think, last part of verse 5, that being godly is a way to get rich. That godliness is a means to financial gain. I'm reading from the NIV, last part of verse 5, chapter 6. So Paul says, well, godliness is great gain when it's godliness with so Paul is saying, here's something that you people who long to be rich need to realize. Contentment is great gain. It's not always financial gain. And the qualifier is contentment with godliness. Take away the godliness, and it's difficult for people to be content. How do you be godly? Let me just give you two recommendations that Paul gave to Timothy in chapter 4, verse 7. Train. <clears throat> Train yourself to be godly. <clears throat> I'm not about to cry right now, but I have lost my ability to talk <clears throat> without water. <clears throat> 4, 7, 1 Timothy Train yourself to be godly. Exercise yourself for godliness. And then he says in our own chapter 6, is it uh, verse 11? But you, Timothy, you man of God, pursue righteousness and godliness. So it has to be an intentional pursuit coupled with rigorous discipline under the power and guidance of the Holy Spirit according to the Word of God that develops godlike character. And only with godliness is there contentment. 
Luke chapter 12, verse 15, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for a person's life does not consist in the things that they possess. The American dream says you can have it all if you work hard enough. And the goal is to get. You're a consumer, not a steward. And pull these things in for yourself and live for yourself. Now, I'm all for freedom when it comes to financial uh, situations in our land, but I just simply want you to know that from a biblical perspective, our God must not be money, or else we will wander away from the faith if we love it too much. I love that film, Filled of Dreams, Kevin Costner and James Earl Jones, who has got to have the greatest voice in the world. And there's one part where James Earl Jones is trying to encourage Costner to have people come and watch the games on the field. And he says, they will come. And they will put down their money and pay for a ticket, for it is money they have, but contentment they lack. And when you realize that money doesn't bring contentment, you're willing to give the money up <laughs> to have what does bring contentment, and that's a right relationship with Almighty God. Contentment with the basics, by the way. Verse 8, if you have food and clothing, isn't that good enough? I don't see health insurance in there. I think I would add that in our day and time. But it was contentment with the basics. As long as you're right with God, that's really what matters. And by the way, the motto of contented people is this. You can't take it with you. That's verse 7. Which is a quotation from Ecclesiastes 5.15. Ecclesiastes 5.15. You brought nothing into this world. And some translations add the phrase, and it is certain you can take nothing out. Ecclesiastes says everyone comes naked from their womb into the world. And as everyone comes, so they go. They take nothing from their toil that their hands can carry. I think it was the old southern preacher Vance Havner who used to say, you never see a U-Haul connected to a funeral hearse. Because you can't take it with you. You can't take it with you, but we're living like we're planning on it, right? This passionate love for things has got us grasping for more and more and more. Our motive is, verse 10, we love money. We simply love it because of what it can purchase for us. Again, Ecclesiastes 5, this time verse 10, whoever loves money will never have enough. And whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. Verse 12, the rich, because of their abundance, often have no sleep. You've got to protect what they have. It's a sad situation. How sad? Well, verse 9 says there's a, at least four steps in the fall. 
Those who want to get rich fall into temptation. It's alluring. It's like a drug. Gambling. Buying. Possessing. It gets hold of you. It changes your chemical, ma chemical makeup, even in the brain. You become dependent on this feeling you get. And that leads to a trap that takes you away from God. But the greed gets worse. It creates in you desires that are foolish, verse 9, and harmful. Why? Because they plunge you into ruin and destruction and lead you away from the Lord. We have biblical testimonies to that, don't we? Achan, who in Joshua 7 was told not to take anything from the fall of Jericho, but grab some silver and a Canaanite garment and buried the treasure in his tent. And Talk about ruin and destruction. His whole family died because of his foolish desires. Or the New Testament story of Judas, who for 30 pieces of silver gave up Jesus. And you and I, for a little bit of money, will give up a lot of Jesus. Time with him, obedience to him. What a sad situation. You cannot take it with you. So avarice brings great loss. That's the lesson verse 9 and 10 tells us. By the way, the word want in verse 9 is the Greek word that means determination. There are two Greek words, they overlap a little bit, that talk about desires and will. One is more of a wish, and the other that is here is determination. Those who are determined to get rich fall into temptation, which is a trap leading to harmful desires and ruin. So Paul says that's, a whole group of people who are in the church, at least earshot of Paul's letter to the pastor, people that attend occasionally, people that Paul has the opportunity to deal with, there's a whole group of people who still want to be rich. But then Paul said there's a group of people in Ephesus who are already rich. By the way, which category would you put yourself into? The wannabes or the already haves? Well, as we said before, if you live in America, you are rich can, uh, in comparison to any standard anywhere else in the world. Think of Honduras and the resources that we have and the lack of them that Milo and his people have to endure. There was a group of Christians in Ephesus who are already rich. Now, remember the picture where we were walking in Ephesus down the pathway to the library of Celsus? And if you get to that position and turn to the left, this is what you see in ancient Ephesus. This is called the Terrace Housing. And it goes up the side of the bank, which gives you a wonderful view of the ocean, 
Now it's five miles away, but in that day it was right there. The port was Ephesus. And these terrace housings, I, I want you to think of uh, apartments in Manhattan. Because this is where the really wealthy live. The next picture shows is they uncover in the ruins floors that were made with beautiful tiles. And what you don't get in this picture, you get in the next picture walls of red. So you've got magnificent tile floors with these brilliant colors. You can see them. It's almost like the wallpaper painted in. And if you look down at the bottom of the picture, the mosaic that was often on the floors. Here's another picture of the plaster being used for artists to depict beautiful Roman scenes and some not so beautiful Roman scenes. And here's a picture of one of the Roman gods, Dionysus, I believe it is. And this was a mosaic on the floor of the wealthy people who lived in Ephesus. And some of those wealthy people were Christians. So Paul said to those who are already rich, verse 17, command those who are rich in this present world. They have a lot of stuff. And that's not necessarily wrong. But he says, don't be arrogant about what you have. You must not brag about your wealth. Regrettably, self-esteem in America today is often measured by our portfolios. And if you have a lot, you can get in. Almost anywhere, if you have money, you can get in. First in line at every event. Invited to the best parties. If you've got this, and many people measure their own self-esteem based on what they have. But it was Paul who said to another wealthy city in the first century, Corinth, what makes you different from somebody else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you brag as if you didn't? That's the world. We expect it from the world. But this is in the church. Bragging about your wealth. I came across this recently, a very interesting verse out of Ezekiel 28. Listen to this. By your skill in trading, you have increased your wealth. And because of your wealth, your heart is grown proud. Because of your skill in trading, think of the stock market. Because of your skill in investing, you have grown wealthy. But because of your wealth, you're arrogant. And don't you know that everything you have is a gift from God? Remember Deuteronomy 8.18, the Lord your God, he is the one who gives you the ability to produce wealth. So the first warning is that you shouldn't brag about it or be arrogant. In the same verse, you must not trust in it. Don't put your hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. 
we trust it. I think I have enough money to retire, you say. Talk about uncertainty in economies. We are living in the most uncertain times, I think, we have faced, certainly in the last few generations. We can't trust in wealth because it takes wings and flies away, the Bible tells us. A glance at riches and they are gone, Proverbs says. But put your trust in God, is the rest of the verse, who is certain and who richly provides everything for our enjoyment. Now let me say something positive about what we have received from God. You're free to enjoy it. I think it's interesting that sometimes preachers guilt manipulate their people into thinking that if you have any money, that's wrong. But they always want it from you. And it's often those very preachers who keep it to themselves and don't tell anyone about it. But to a certain point, every good gift is from above, and God's the one who gives us the ability to make wealth, and there is a sense in which we can enjoy it. There's no command in the Bible to give it all away. Jesus tested the rich young ruler with such a command, but it's not universal. And some of the godliest people in the Bible were very wealthy people, just like some godly people in Ephesus, probably living in Manhattan apartments. Nothing wrong with enjoying it. I think it was Peyton March who said, there's a wonderful mythical law of nature. The three things we crave most in life, happiness, freedom, peace of mind, are always attained when we give them to someone else. Because even though we are to enjoy these things, the best way to enjoy is to share. And this is a command. Notice the word command is used twice in this text, verse 17, verse 18. Command, verse 18, those rich people, that is, they're rich in the goods of this present world, command them to be rich in good deeds. So in other words, spending their time in benevolent ways to help those who are not as fortunate as they are, good deeds, and be generous and willing to share. Very interesting Greek word that's only found here, willing to share. It comes out of the base word koinonia, which means fellowship. And the idea of giving of our resources is sharing life. It's communicating with others of the goodness of God. And although they may not have something, God has chosen through us to give them and provide for their lack. Paul says, this is what you need to do, is share. I love the quote from Thornton Wilder who said, money's like manure. It's good for nothing unless you spread it around. <laughs> and when you spread it around, you enjoy it. And when you give 
as we noticed last week, you get unbelievable blessing. And there is great gain in godliness and contentment as we share with others. Hebrews chapter 13, don't forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. And since these are the sound words of the Lord Jesus Christ, which we read about in the early part of chapter 6, it's important for us to remember that Jesus is the epitome of generosity. When though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. Sometimes that spills over into material things, but it certainly means contentment and peace of mind and significance and joy and acceptance with God and forgiveness of sins and heaven as a home and the confidence of that assurance deep in our hearts. It's difficult to know how much to give, isn't it? Old Testament, 10%, but when you put it all together, they had several tithes. There was a priestly tithe and a welfare tax and a tax on their produce. Add it all together and it came out to about 23%. And in the New Testament, the tithe is not held up as the main standard. It is grace-giving. Have you been touched by grace? Give us accordingly. It's intentional giving and it's proportional giving based on the blessing God's given to us and it's sacrificial giving and it is voluntary giving and it is grace giving. As grace has touched our hearts, we want to touch others. It was C.S. Lewis who said, I do not believe we can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than you can spare. <laughs> the wise Englishman. Give more than you can spare. There was a mayor in New York, Fiorello LaGuardia. And the airport is named after this guy. He was the mayor, I think, in the 30s and 40s in New York. And using this illustration does not, does not put my approval on who he did or all that he did. But one time he did something pretty cool. I think he was ex-mayor and he was ruling one day, presiding over a police court when they brought in a trembling old man who had been caught stealing. So we're talking about World War II years or just after. The charge, stealing a loaf of bread. LaGuardia listened and heard the man speak. I did it because my family is starving, he said. Well, said LaGuardia, I've got no other alternative but to punish you. The law makes no mistake or no exception. So the only thing I can do is to sentence you to a fine of $10. Now, this man had nothing. The gavel comes down, $10. Then he immediately reached into his pocket and pulled out a $10 bill. 
And he said, I now rescind the fine of $10. And he took off his big hat and put the $10 bill into it. And then he said, furthermore, I fine everyone in this courtroom 50 cents for living in a town where a man has to steal a loaf of bread just in order to eat. Mr. Bailiff, collect the fines and give them to the defendant. <laughs> and that poor man went out with $47.50 in his pocket, which in the 40s would have been change. if God would say, you know, the poor you will always have with you, but there shouldn't be that many because I've made a lot of you rich. You've got to get this, though. This is verse 19. In this way, by sharing, we are laying up treasure for ourselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. Wait a minute, you said earlier, you can't take it with you. That's right. But now he's saying, but you can send it ahead of you. You can lay up for the coming age treasure. And when you do so, you take hold of life, which is the second time Paul has used this expression in this chapter. You take hold of life that is truly life. I like that phraseology. You really begin to give or live when you give. You take hold on eternal life because now you see things as they are and you're living for eternity. You've taken hold of that. God is your God, not money. And whatever resources you have, you're going to thank him for it. You're not going to boast about them. You're not going to trust in them. You're going to enjoy them to some degree, but you're going to give them for the work of the gospel and for the relief of the poor because that's what Jesus would do. And when you do that, you have taken hold on real life. You've taken hold on life that is truly life. And when you live like that, the world says, maybe there is something about this Christianity that is real. Every story in the paper that exposes the frauds, particularly in the realm of money, hurts the cause of the gospel. And we can re reverse that only in our daily life where we are committed to living according to these simple principles because we put our trust in God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for such practical teaching, and yet it's difficult. It goes against the grain of our nature. Not our new one, but our old one, which unfortunately we still battle with. So Lord, help us to win the battle this day as we refresh ourselves, remind ourselves, with the fact that you are the one who gives us the wealth. And we should not be proud or brag or trust in it, but only in the one who gives it. And if all were taken away, 
we cannot lose our so great salvation purchased by the blood of the Lamb and given to us forever. Oh Lord, let us remember that we can't take it with us, but we can send it ahead of us. May we do so in Jesus' name. Amen.